This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 27. The trials are now over, the betrayals and the denials are done. We've reached the crucifixion of Jesus. This bloody and horrific scene is the center point of history. It's where redemption occurred and humanity, cursed by sin, found hope in God's Son. But why did it have to happen? Why did Jesus have to suffer like this? What can we learn from these gruesome details? Well, it seems we can learn a lot since it will take us several weeks to cover this event, but it's worth it because it's Christ's sacrifice that makes sinners clean and able to avoid the righteous judgment of a holy God, as we'll learn from today's message from Pastor Pierre. Let's read verses 32 through 37 of chapter 27 of the Gospel of Matthew. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Okay, so this is the beginning of the crucifixion scene here. And in this portion, there are four specific features I want to highlight here, again, in order for us to appreciate and appropriate Christ's redemptive work on our behalf. The first one here in verse 32, we're going to call the conscription. The conscription. Now, Roman legionnaires didn't have permission to kill victims during the pre-crucifixion scourging. They would leave the victim barely alive because they still had to march to the crucifixion scene. And the victim would have to carry his own cross. And again, the purpose for that is to ensure that the bloody, half-dead, condemned person would provide a gory spectacle for everybody watching. But the pre-crucifixion beatings often caused so much muscle damage and trauma that the condemned very often died even before getting to the site. Now, in the case of Jesus here, he was so weakened by the physical abuse and the sleepless night from the unjust trials that we looked at a couple weeks ago that soldiers had to recruit this guy, conscript really a bystander, to carry the cross for him. This was not an act of mercy. This was an act of practicality. Simon was a Jew, as his name suggests, visiting Jerusalem for the Passover from Cyrene. The text tells us that. Cyrene is in modern-day Libya in North Africa. Apparently, the Roman soldiers chose him randomly. There's nothing special about Simon here other than God's sovereign plan to allow him to be the cross-bearer for Christ for that time. And I'll tell you, from Simon's perspective, this event had a profound impact on his life. And here's why we can come to that conclusion. Mark identifies Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. There are other Alexanders in the Bible. It's a common Greek name. But Luke mentions one who was a Jew in Acts 19, verse 33. He mentions a man by the name of Alexander who attempted to make a defense of Christianity in Ephesus when the crowd heard that Paul had led many to Christ in that city. 
to the theory of a man by the name of Demetrius, who was a silversmith who made shrines for Artemis, one of the Ephesian goddesses. That is all in the book of Acts, chapter 19. Now, in the final remarks that Paul makes to the Romans, the apostle instructs his readers to greet Rufus. And he says, a choice man in the Lord. That is in Romans 16, verse 13. Now, what this tells us is that Rufus was known for his Christ likeness, whoever this Rufus is, which is confirmed further by the fact that Mark, the one who mentioned both Alexander and Rufus, the sons of Simon, wrote his gospel in Rome, likely after Paul's letter, and would have wanted to share information about how these two came to faith in Christ. Does that make sense? Here's my line of thinking. Is it possible that the Jewish Alexander that Luke mentions and the Rufus here that Mark mentions, who was known among the Romans, are the sons of Simon the Cyrene? If so, then the cross-bearer would have read the Old Testament with his sons and would have concluded, I just picked up the cross for my Savior. And then would have led the entire family to Christ. And that entire family would have joined the early church in Jerusalem. And at least Rufus had some type of a ministry with the Roman believers. That's my line of thinking here. So God used this likely unpleasant situation to lead Simon and his family to Christ, to a saving knowledge of Christ. Now, we don't know if this is what happened. Like I said, this is my line of thinking based on the information we have here from Scripture. But here's what we do know. We know that God is not willing that any should perish. And also that he plans every day of our lives, just like he did with Simon here. And he uses those unusual circumstances in order to bring glory to his name and salvation for people. So we can conclude then with certainty that your unusual situation this morning, perhaps nerve-wracking, perhaps unpleasant, may be part of God's plan in order to bring you to maturity, spiritually speaking, or to salvation in Christ in case you're not yet saved. We know that God works behind the scenes in your life, even in what you consider a situation like this. Remember, Simon did not volunteer for the task. He was coerced. So after this conscription, I want to highlight the second feature of this portion of the crucifixion scene. Here we're going to call this the cruelty, verses 33 through 34. The practice of the Romans was to lay the condemned victim on the wooden instrument of torture to stretch his arms and legs for maximum pain. And before they do that, they would offer him an anesthetic concoction commonly prepared by local Jewish women. Now, the local Jewish women did this out of compassion of their hearts. The state gave them permission to do that because that anesthetic concoction here would loosen the muscles and facilitate the crucifying of the victim, who at this point would resist crucifixion. Even someone who was weakened with muscles torn apart and all of that, they would resist crucifixion. The job of the guards would have been made easier if Jesus took that wine mixed with gall, or according to Mark, myrrh. But check this out, church. One of the reasons Jesus refused to drink was that no one had to force him to go to the cross. He had already said, I lay down my life voluntarily for my sheep. And he had already assured in John 10, verse 18, that no one has taken my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. And he follows up by saying, I will take it back on my own initiative. So there was really no need for anybody to fight Jesus to keep him on the cross because he's not a victim. He is the victor going to accomplish redemption for you and for me. So there was no need for him to drink any type of anesthetic concoction here. 
And also he refused relief from pain because as the substitute sin bearer for you and for me, he knew that he had to experience and receive the full measure of the wrath of God, which includes physical torture, physical pain. Again, even though that is not the main thing that kept Jesus agonizing in Gethsemane, he was agonizing over the time where the Father would turn his face away from him temporarily so that he wouldn't have to turn his face away from you and from me eternally. But also there's another reason why Jesus didn't take this medicine here. It's a very practical reason. He needed to be sober in order to articulate statements from the cross. There are several of those. When you read the Gospels and you read a harmonized version of the, all the four Gospels, he had conversations with people from the cross. For example, he interacted with one of the thieves on the cross. He interacted with John. So he needed sobriety to articulate coherent thoughts in his last moments of life here. Otherwise... Check this out. Bystanders and later gospel readers could have alleged that everything he said came from a mind that was not entirely there. For example, he was not under the effect of anesthesia when he instructed John to adopt Mary as a mother. That's in John 19, verse 27. Or when he concluded the suffering part of the redemptive work and proclaimed, It is finished! John 19, verse 30. So you see, someone who's hostile to the gospel, hostile to Christ, could come and say, no, he's saying all of this because he's out of his mind. He's under the influence of narcotics. But that's not the case. We know for a fact that Jesus retained complete consciousness during his entire ordeal and that nothing he said was influenced by painkillers. His prayer for God to forgive his executioners, for example, in Luke 23, verse 34, was as coherent, sober, and true as his promise to forgive you if you come to faith in him. You see, that is why we must look at the crucifixion scene here and appreciate and appropriate Christ's redemptive work on our behalf. So let's keep going here. We looked at the conscription. We looked at the cruelty. The third feature of the crucifixion scene here that I want to bring to your attention is the custom, verses 35 through 36, the custom. After tying the accused horizontally on the cross, the Roman soldiers, likely the same who escorted the victim to the site, would drive thick nails through the wrists between the two bones. The nails tore through muscle tissues, snapping ligaments on their way in and rubbing against nerves. Imagine the excruciating pain of somebody at this point. By the way, the word excruciating comes from this scene. It means literally out of the cross. So when you say to somebody, oh, my, my headache is excruciating. No, it's not. An aspirin will fix it. This is excruciating pain. It's out of the cross. So the shock waves that would send through the crucified victim's brain would be overwhelming. Most people here at this point would beg to be killed. Now, the next thing they would do is drive either one nail through the instep of the foot here into a footrest or on the sides of the Achilles tendon here. Now, if that is the case, it could be one or the other. I'm not entirely sure. It doesn't really matter. But if that is the case, that entire scene sheds light into the prophecy of Genesis 3, verse 15, right? That the descendant of the serpent would bruise his heel and the descendant of the woman would bruise his head as a fatal blow. This is a reference to Christ's conquering death after his death on the cross. Now, to relieve stress on his overstretched lungs, the victim would push his body up in order to try to breathe. And that process alone, keep in mind, I don't mean to be graphic here, but that process would cause his 
lacerated back to rub against the rough wood. And, and, and in case you didn't know, the Romans wouldn't finish the wood. They were not concerned about beauty or aesthetics at this time. They were concerned about inflicting as much pain as possible. So as the victim would rub his lacerated back against the rough wood, he would collect splinters and agony. But the most heart-wrenching part of this process here, again, none of the gospel writers give us all of these details. We have to go to the history books in order to learn that because they don't need to include that. Every, at least the original readers knew exactly what crucifixion was. Now, we are 2,000 years separated from that practice, so we need to fill in the details here. But the most heart-wrenching part of this process, church, I want you to know, was the placing of the cross into the hole on the ground because the crucified victim would be laying down, nailed on the cross, now they would hoist the whole thing up, and the hole in the ground had to be deep enough for the entire cross to remain stable. Otherwise, wind would topple the thing over. So the impact alone of that would disconnect joints and snap skin. Again, most people at this point would beg to be killed as an act of compassion and as an act of mercy. Now, we're told here in the text that in the meantime, the Roman soldiers cast lots to determine which one would keep each piece of it, the garments of the crucified victim. But this would also inflict more humiliation to the victim because the soldiers not only collect a token, and keep in mind here, this is analogous to collecting skulls of the enemy, if you will. So they would collect tokens of their victims. That's one reason. But the other is the victim would be looking at that, and the crucified victim would be naked completely exposed to the elements, humiliated, dehumanized, degraded, and undignified. And that is what Jesus had to endure for you and for me. The shame, the humiliation. It wasn't just the physical pain. It was psychological torture. It was spiritual agony because not too long from this, the Father will turn his face away from him and he will cry out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Well, look at verse 36. There's an important detail here that we, we shouldn't miss. Matthew tells us that the soldiers kept guarding the cross. Why do you think that is? There are a couple of reasons for that. One, they knew Jesus was famous. He had followers, so they obviously didn't want anybody to go there and, and, and save him. But even enemies at this point would look at the situation, and anybody with a soul would have at least some compassion for the crucified victim. But in this verse, Matthew wants us to have no doubt in our minds that Jesus actually died on that cross. So he says that, no, Roman guards secure the place. So no one had any access to Jesus while he was still alive. I mean, as far as touching or trying to rescue him. So this gossip that Jesus might have been taken alive from the cross, if the Romans weren't there, the Roman guards, would have questioned Christ's resurrection and even our redemption. People could have said, well, he, they put him in a tomb while he was just passing out. So he, he woke up in a tomb because of the aromatics that they placed on his body. And somehow he woke up from all of the beatings and, and rolled that big stone and overpowered two Roman soldiers and appeared to the disciples. Think of the silliness of that. Listen to how John kills any potential rumors that Jesus might have fainted on the cross and somehow woke up in a tomb. John 19, verse 34. Listen to this. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. What is that? What, what is water and blood coming out? That's blood from the heart and also fluid from the pericardium, from the heart. That's evidence that Jesus died. 
John continues, he, he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. So he says, I'm telling you this so that you know for a fact that Jesus died on that cross. It, it was a complete redemptive death. It wasn't a fainting. It wasn't a passing out or anything like that. I am giving you proof, he says, unquestionably. Our Lord died on a cross, and he conquered death on the third day. Now, why is this important? Because Scripture makes it very clear. It's important for us to know in verse 36. I don't need to convince anybody in this crowd here. I know that. But it's important for us to know. Now, John in chapter 19, verses 23 through 24 of this gospel, states that the casting of lots for the garments of Jesus actually fulfilled prophecy. It wasn't that it was just a common custom at the time. Before the Romans decided to institute that or to use that as a common thing to do during executions of, of people. Way before that, God had already determined that this would happen. Why do we know that? Because that prophecies in Psalm 22, verse 18, which reads this, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So there is information here years before the whole thing was invented. Once again, Scripture reminds us that God is sovereign, even in the horror of this scene here. He had predetermined this moment. Jesus was not a victim of man's scheming, but the victor in accomplishing redemption and atoning for sins. If you don't know what that word is, write it down, because this is something you need to know. It's a theological term called atonement. It's the fact that Jesus died in your place. You could not atone for yourself. You could not satisfy divine justice for yourself. You need a substitute. Why? Because you're a sinner, just like the rest of us. And in order for someone to atone for the sins of sinners, that someone needs to be perfect. That someone needs to be divine. That someone needs to be God. But God doesn't die. So Jesus had to be human at the same time. So the same sovereign God who has foreordained every detail of the crucifixion, there are plenty other Details which you will be given as a homework this week for your growth groups to go check out some prophecies about this scene here. Likewise, he has predetermined and foreordained every minute of your life. Even those moments that you consider terrible, they serve the purpose of an all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God. But you say, Pastor, but, but I make decisions. Yes, God has equipped you with the ability to make decisions. In fact, we are called upon to make the right decisions according to the Word of God. But God knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, we're told. And our decisions cannot trump divine sovereignty. So He has foreordained and predetermined every moment of your life. And that brings us tremendous comfort. Because our lives are not random. They're not purposeless. Every moment of our life, even the, the moments you say, I, I don't understand why this is happening, because it's, we're confronted with that when we're reading about the crucifixion. We're saying, why? Why this level of cruelty? Why this level of blood? Why this level of humiliation? And we know why. It's because it's the full measure of divine wrath that Jesus Christ has taken upon himself. It's God punishing God so that you can go free. Those of us who place our trust in Christ... And again, the purpose of this particular scene here is unmistakably clear. Jesus took the cross meant for Barabbas. Keep that in mind. But check this out. You were also meant for that cross. I was supposed to be on that cross as well. Why? Because again, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're told in Romans 3 verse 23, all have sinned. That includes you and me. 
and fall short of the glory of God. You're going to say, but why, pastor? I'm a pretty decent person. There's no question about, about that. I know you're a pretty decent person, but we're still sinners, and that's the problem. Therefore, we all deserve to be punished forever. But check this out, Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So in the person of Jesus Christ on that Roman cross, God is saying, I love you that much in order to condemn and abuse my own son who is equal with me in order to to allow you to go free if you place your trust in me. See, even if my body was nailed to the cross, even if my muscle tissues were torn apart and my nerves ripped in Roman execution style, even if accusers scourged me and spat on my disfigured face like they did with Jesus, those things would still not satisfy divine wrath. And it still boggles my mind that people try to do that, literally and figuratively. People try to atone for their own sins. That will not do. See, divine holiness demands the shedding of sinless blood for the remission of sin. That's in Hebrews 9, verse 22. That is one of the reasons why Jesus had to bleed. His blood had to be shed visibly rather than just having a heart attack or dying in his sleep peacefully. It's because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins. But that blood needs to be sinless. Therefore, that is why all of the sacrifices that we read in the Old Testament point to the greater sacrifice of Christ, who is the Lamb of God. All of the other lambs up until that point merely pointed to Christ. Now, when Jesus came, like we're told in the book of John, this is the Lamb of God who what? Takes the sin of the world. Every other lamb just painted a picture of that. But when Jesus came, he takes away the sin of the world because he took it upon himself, your sin and my sin. So nobody other than the sinless, impeccable Son of God qualifies to die for the sins of sinners. He endured shame, agony, and humiliation, not only as a substitute for Barabbas, but also for you and for me. So my fellow born-again believer, never forget this. Never take this for granted. Every burst of pain that shot through the body of Jesus reminded him of you personally. Reminded him of you. Why? Because the Bible says we are his elect. He knew us from the foundation of the world and he accomplished redemption for us and he predetermined that you would come to faith in Christ. So therefore he was thinking about you and he would save you forever. And he sealed that deal with his precious sinless blood. Do you see why he wants us to appreciate and appropriate Christ's redemptive work on our behalf? Let's conclude. After the conscription, the cruelty, the custom, I want you to see the fourth feature of the crucifixion scene as described by Matthew here, and that's going to be the conviction. Verse 37, the conviction. Now, during the march from the praetorium to Golgotha, Jesus would have worn an inscription around his neck, and that inscription would list his crimes. In a sarcastically vengeful move, Pilate ordered the inscription to identify Christ as the king of the Jews. And remember, the chief priest asked him to change the sign to say, no, 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 Pilate, remove that and say that he claimed to be king, which the governor declined and said, what I've written, I've written. So the soldiers nailed that sign on the top of the vertical beam of the cross. Again, nothing unusual here. The original readers would have understood exactly what this was all about. So there's Pilate's purpose was to get back at the Jews, to be vengeful, to be sarcastic. 
But God's purpose with this sign, church, is to show forever that Christ came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's in John 1, in the prologue of the Gospel of John. The Jews of that generation rejected Christ. But, John continues, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's John 1, verses 12 to 13. So what we know for sure here, church, and we have now written evidence from a Roman governor that Israel rejected Jesus Christ, Israel of that generation, and that's going to be their conviction on the great white throne judgment day. That's the sad news for people who reject Christ, not only for the Jews of that nation, but for everyone today. No one will be able to say, whoops, I didn't realize that, that Jesus was the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I didn't realize that he was the Savior of the world. I just thought I was making another decision for another religion that's more convenient for me. God will say, no, you are without an excuse because you have plenty of evidence, not only about the nature of God, but also of the entire redemptive story here. Lay aside your pride. Now humble your heart and come to faith in Jesus Christ. You'll have eternal life. You'll make you a new person. And you will escape the wrath of a holy God. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.